Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in July 2022. Today's episode is all about sexual and relationship ethics. So we'll be thinking about toleration for and permissibility of various sexual relationships, the value of sexual relationships, and how some moral theories may apply. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Fiona Woolard, who's Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southampton. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Simon. Uh, we've got Matt Harris, who's a teacher at Cheltenham College. Hi, Matt. Hi, Simon. And Beth McIntosh, who's a Visiting Research and Knowledge Exchange Fellow at the University of Winchester and also Head of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Winchester College. Hi, Beth. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you and Fiona and Matt as, uh, with us as well. Okay, so we're going to talk about sex and relationship ethics today. Um, for any students listening in, this topic appears on both the OCR and Edexcel A-level curricula. In both cases, it weaves in reference to religion, um, which we are, we're going to refer to, I'm sure. But there are some distinctly philosophical and ethical questions that arise in relationship to sex and, and relations. If you aren't studying OCR or Edexcel, I hope this will be interesting all the same. You might want to do an extended essay on something we cover. Uh, needless to say, because of the topic area, the specific details we discuss may get us into some delicate areas. But I suspect that if you've covered this in the classroom already, you'll be used to that. So to, to get us going, let's think about some general philosophical issues in relation to sexual relationship ethics, uh, distinctions we might want to draw, ideas, contrasts, important concepts. So, so Beth, do you want to say a few words just to get us going, please? Yes, yeah, so I think it's um, just really important to think about how there are lots of different types of relationships and there are lots of different types of um, sexual relationships. And it, it might be interesting just to think a little bit about, um, we'll almost step back and reflect a little bit on how all the ethical theories that you study and we teach and explore will take a very different approach to relationships and also to sex. And I think that's really important to start with sort of um, conceptual definitions and a bit of um, work in that area. So if we think about the utilitarians, and I'm summarising and aware there's a lot more nuance to what each theorist says, but the utilitarians are obviously going to treat relationships as valuable only insofar as they tend to increase the happiness of the sentient world. And so what is intrinsically valuable is that sort of state of affairs in which the happiness of all sentient beings is maximised. So relationships, I guess, can contribute to that state of affairs by making those involved in them happier or by encouraging us to seek out the happiness of others as well as ourselves. So sex for the utilitarian is pleasure-based and um, so if sex is enjoyable, then it's seen as good. And if it causes harm or pain, it's bad. Um, and so, yeah, just to start with, I think it's really important to whichever theory you're looking at or whichever um, religious tradition you're exploring, it's really worth thinking, what is it or how is it that relationships are valued? And how is it that this theory approaches um sex and obviously if we were to look at Kantian perspectives or uh, other Christian uh, perspectives or religious traditions we'd have a very different set of answers there wouldn't we in terms of how do they value relationships and how does what what is sex 
all about. And from there, I think it's quite a good place to then think about the, the different types of sexual relationships that, that, that exist. Okay, great. That's a really nice way to start things. Beth, Fiona, Matt, uh, do you want to con- either of you want to continue the story for us? Yeah, I think yeah, following on from um, what you were saying, Beth, it's really important not only to think about the different ethical theories, but also how they all have something, I feel anyway, each theory has got something to commend it, but also significant downsides as well. And what I tend to find is that I like something from each theory. I like the emphasis, say, on, on freedom of choice and happiness in something like utilitarianism. I like the idea of not treating people solely as a means to an end from Kantian ethics. Uh, I acknowledge the importance of reproduction, although not everyone would, would think that's important from natural moral law. And like the idea of trying to think about the other person from situation ethics. So I, I like all these benefits, but then each theory has got um, such significant downsides as well. So it's very difficult for me and my students to find a single theory which clearly trumps the rest. I, I find that, well, simultaneously very exciting, but also maddening. <laughs> Yeah, so, so just a thought from me, and then I'll bring Fiona in. Yeah, so, well, this is something that, that Fiona will know about me, but Beth and Matt, you may not. So I'm, I'm just not a big fan of any normative ethical theory of the sort you've just listed, Matt. That's why I'm kind of very much into anti-theory, uh, but that's a, that's a different pod completely, I think. Um, go on, Fiona. Do you want to say something? Yeah, so when i teach philosophy of sex um in my um to my university students we don't tend to go this is what utilitarians say this is what kantians say um but we often look at ways of understanding what sex is and we get the same thing we get the same thing with that they seem to have picked up something important about what sex is but to be missing part of the story and so i i think it's it's interesting that you get that both when you're looking at the, the big general theories of ethics, but also when when we look at kind of general theories of human sexuality, we get, have that same that same issue of it's part of the story. I also think there's something quite interesting about when we're talking about philosophy of sex that it it deals with something that um, all of all of us have some kind of relationship with. I mean, even if you've never had sex, you might that's that's still a kind of relationship to a, a you know not having sex is is a is a kind of um sexual identity isn't it but we all tend to not have access much access beyond our own very particular experience so it's there's a kind of really interesting epistemological issue there about you know how do we make these theories about what sex is like what the value of sex is how do we make them not just apply to our own sexuality and our own sexual experience? How do we kind of make them take into account other people's experiences? Um, when it- Fiona, that's really interesting is that, you know, you mentioned there about people not always having the complete picture when it comes to sex. One of the things that um, I look at with my pupils at, at college is when we're looking at something which is on the OCR specification, which is, of course, homosexuality. What I tend to find is speaking to my uh, pupils is that individually they've got very different ideas about homosexuality. So we, we try to look at it in as broad a way as possible. So not even just for so-called traditional distinction between acts versus orientation, but also identity, politics, some of the limit issues which have caused there to be 
disagreements even within, say, the LGBTQ plus community. We try to look at it in as broad a way as possible and then look at it not only through the normative ethical theories, but also through um, lenses of, say, very, very different theoretical lenses, such as um, more traditional Christianity, liberal Christians, such as the Church of England Bishop, Alan Wilson, Foucault, Mill's political philosophy. So we try to look at it in as broad a way as possible because at the start of the course, you'll have even upper six people saying, homosexuality, that's just having sex with somebody of the same sex, isn't it? And you just want to tear your hair out thinking, no, it's 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 so much more of a complex um, issue than that. It's got so many dimensions to it. And I feel that part of the course, I don't want to turn it into a PSHE course because there's nothing like that at all, but to look at it both theoretically and practically in, in so much more of a broad light than, than just reducing it to one or even two things. That's a really interesting point, Matt. In fact, just a comment from me as, as very much an outsider here, because I'm not, I, I mean, unlike Fiona, I, I don't do philosophy of sex as a, as a course at, at university. And of course, I'm not teaching A-level or IB or higher students. But just looking at the at the curricula for OCR and Excel, it says sexual and relationship ethics, but it's, I mean, not as if it says in bold at all, but the emphasis seems to be on sexual ethics, and that's where one's attention is immediately drawn. But the way you've just described it, Matt, seems to be exactly the right way to not just teach it, but actually to think about it. It's there's a, There should be an equal emphasis on sexual and relationship ethics. And the relationships are just, just as important as what one might immediately be drawn to in kind of, you know, the, um, the, the, the sexual ethics part and that they are kind of linked in interesting ways. So then just to go, go on from that, so just so perhaps just to list and then get people's first takes on this, which we'll then pursue through the, through the episode. So it seems that, so OCR and Excel, the, the specs specifications are quite similar, but people may not be aware of, of the other. So we've got um, types of sexual relationships. So uh, same sex relationships. You just mentioned those, Matt. Um, there's also topics around premarital, extramarital, sexual relationships where of course there's also marital sexual relationships talking about the value of certain relationships which we'll come on to towards the end and also topics around contraception and childlessness can i ask ask a general question particularly to matt and and, and you beth which are the which are the kind of topics that really get students going they really get into i would say they enjoy talking about i would say not those topics in particular but more the the meta issues which run across the topics issues like consent and what they really want to talk about as well are ways in which, say, traditional religious values can run up against more modern liberal values and even post-liberal values. So it's more the meta issues which get them going, which they, they then apply across the topics. I, I think that particularly with premarital sex and extramarital sex, they already would have talked about these a good deal at GCSE. So perhaps uh, it doesn't interest them as much. Mm, yes, and drawing sort of drawing on a point that Matt and Fiona were making just a second ago about what's going on for them in terms of these big questions. And for some of them, there will be a few of them where this whole topic is about a sort of getting closer to God. And for some of them, it's about getting towards what is the right thing to do. And for some of them, it's drawing on what Fiona was mentioning in terms of it's about identity. And whenever it gets close to this idea of your you're exploring yourself. I think that's where they get really excited, but also frustrated because the tension that Matt describes is that they might feel a sort of oppressive tension from certain traditions, um, limiting that that self-expression that comes through 
our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with others and those sexual relationships, which might be part of that important part of our identity. Okay, great. Can I then take that on then another notch, all of our discussion, and think about that one of those broad topics? So, so here we are, we, we, like we've got an individual or a, a pair of individuals and they want to engage in some, they want to have a relationship, they, they already have a relationship, they want to engage in some sort of sexual relationship, but there are, there's the state or there's other people, other groups who have views about this sort of relationship, whatever it might be. And so there's a question about the legitimacy of that those other groups, those other people's views. I'm just wondering, can we just tease out what's going on there and whether, um, I mean, not just, you know, what your thoughts, how students might respond to the, legit- the, the legitimacy or or otherwise of, of what those other people might might think. Should we just uh, think about, about that topic for a bit? Yeah, so the way I see that topic playing out is that you have two opposite ends of the spectrum, really. On the one end, you have, say, Mill's harm principle, oblique liberty principle, so one political philosophy end of the spectrum. And again, people who've studied politics um, tend to find that that chimes well, where as long as you're not harming somebody else, you're uh, free to partake in anything which pertains to your own person uh, without restraint from the state or government. Uh, and then you, you have, say, Foucault as well, and he'll be sceptical about any dominant discourses and would be talking about the flow of power and how marginal voices should be supported against perhaps uh, an overly tyrannical state. But at the other end, you might have something like natural moral law talking about human laws being just, the, the importance of order in society, and those human laws being just insofar as they conform to God's law, whether that be revealed through divine law in the Bible and church tradition or natural law through right use of reason. So you have those opposite ends of the spectrum and then things fall in between. So it's it, a lot of it's about framing the debate and then allowing people the opportunity to explore the different ideas and, and look at the positions in between as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, I mean, I've just moved to a, um, a single-sex boys' school that's going co-educational but have been in a girls' school for a while and I'll, I'll defer to Fiona in a minute because she's an expert in this area but I mean the feminist perspective on this that is very, very critical of the um, the libertarian approach and how they might feel this does not allow space for, for that perspective. Um, I think that's something that's really important and it's really interesting to think about your school setting when exploring these this range of the spectrum. Matt, you're in a co-educational school, is that right? And then, um, Fiona, I don't know if you want to come in, but obviously I, I wondered if you did teach your modules from a sort of feminist perspective in some sense. Oh, so I um, I think I probably do because I, I am a feminist. I I find it, it's, you've, you've kind of picked up on something that's quite interesting, but not on this topic, um, which is that I find that I, I need to teach quite carefully in order to not be uh in order to to make room for lots of different viewpoints because students are coming from different places so i try i do i do include feminism but uh it, it is it is a a balance there i think um but i do think it's it that's something that i was thinking about simon when when you talked about the the two people who want to do something of course, there are going to be questions about uh, how 
autonomous are they in their desires? Do they really want to do those things or do they only want to do those things because society has put a certain vision of how a relationship would work? in their heads and 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 that might you know influence what what they what they desire i also want to draw another distinction so, uh, so the other distinction i wanted to draw is between different types of interference because you might say we could critique or criticize an arrangement and that's quite different from having a law having differences in the law about how people are treated um, which is again different from having actually, you know, uh, restrictions on that type of relationship. And uh, again, we can have that within, you know, a, a, a group or a, 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 a religion. You can have a religion where they say, "Well, we we have concerns about this. Uh, this this is not the way you should behave." Or the religion can say, "This is forbidden. You, uh, we will." Um, not accept people who behave in this way. So there's lots of sort of, I think, space for having different types of, yeah, diff- different different ranges of third parties having attitudes about what's happening, what's going on in a relationship. Good. That was really helpful. Oh, go on, Matt. The point about true opinions is really is really interesting. One One of the things I try to bring up when we talk about consent, for example, is you know, can consent be manufactured? And then you can make some great links to other areas of the OCR course, uh, other areas we would um, talk about are, say, utilitarianism. And if we talk about, say, Richard Branson preference utilitarianism, he gets into kind of psychoanalysis and all, all sorts of other things in terms of what are your true preferences? Um, you might be saying yes to something in a in a sexual ethics con- or in a sexual context, but is, is this because you've been brought up to think that this is what you should be doing? And then there are wonderful links you can make to Freud with conscience, which is one of the epistemic ethics topics. And also, you mentioned about feminism as well. Of course, a little bit further on in the developments in Christian thought section, there is uh, gender and society and gender and theology. And I, I teach both of those areas. And once we've got to that part of the course too, it's, it's worth, uh, I find, bringing up some of the sexual ethics um, topics and issues again. Say, so, okay, now we've had a look at uh, this material, have your beliefs changed have your thoughts changed on the matter and that's the, that's the wonderful thing about the a level um is that it, you get into so many different areas you can make all these synoptic connections and they're rich and very much worth making great thanks all three of you Shall I, i'm just going to pause there and just try and pull some of those strands together and i'm going to got another then kind of a quite a, a blunt question to ask the three of you to perhaps to end this section before we move on, on to the next one so um i started with seemingly a simple question right so here we've got two people or perhaps just one person right they want to engage they have a, they want to have a certain sort of relationship or they have already an existing relationship and want to engage in certain sorts of sexual activity but there are other people outside that relationship it might be a religious group it might be the state it might just be people in society who have different views and the question we're thinking about is what the legitimacy is to have those views so they can have it or whether they can perhaps to, to word it slightly differently, what legitimacy they have to intervene and either cr- criticise or indeed to make a law about that that certain sort of relationship or sexual activity. And, and just to remind everyone, so Matt said, you know, it might be a kind of um, a range here going from, you know, very briefly kind of male consent principle up to 
kind of very interventionist views, perhaps based on religion, perhaps based on something else. And you mentioned natural law theory. There might be different thoughts here between consent and liberalism and freedom, and then also the issue of order and having a certain sort of prescriptive view about what society should be like and what it, what it should be to be an adult in that society. But then we introduce this other interesting theme in different ways. So, you know, I, I just set up a nice toy example. We've got two people, they're in a relationship, they want to do these things. Well, do they both want to do them? How much are they playing up to an image? How much they, the, the, is it really their true preference, which is a phrase we had? Is one person a bit more dominant than the other in the relationship? That's a very interesting kind of issue here. So there's lots of things then to be teasing out when we're thinking about all different sorts of sexual and other relationships that are, that are going on. So then just the, the question for the, for the three of you then, just to bring it back. So I want to do a certain sort of thing with my wife or my girlfriend or my boyfriend. Why, why on earth should other people tell us what we can and can't do? What might be the basis? Well, I suppose... First of all, we're, we're thinking about um, age and stage, aren't mm-hmm. we? And we might be dealing with um, two very uh, young people. Good. Two people that are young and in a process of rational maturation. And um, I think it's Aristotle, isn't it, who says we're not actually really quite up to up to it morally until we're 50. So um, <laughs> that's just to make light of it. But actually, we do need to think about the idea of there is a process at which we, we grow towards um, in terms of our, our what what we know to be right, um, and what we know to be right for ourselves, so I think we do need to think about the age and stage, and and the intervention might come from a carer or a parent who is trying to um, help that process of growth for that individual or individuals. Yeah, great. Thanks, Beth. Fiona, Matt, anything to to add? Um, so I think I I would add. So one of the things that we um that we talk about in um in in our in, in my philosophy sex module it are some of the kind of um views about what good sex is and what a good sexual relationship is and you can get you can get kind of not traditional christian uh versions or uh, which which take this question kind of seriously and don't think it's just you know if everybody's consented it, there's there's no difference um, and that's thinking about things like like pleasure and autonomy and your attitudes to uh, each other. Um, Cyril Morgan, I think, has a, a really nice um, sexual ethics. It's it's sort of Kantian um, in that it, it, it emphasizes the the attitudes that you have to the other person and and attitudes of respect for them. So I think that that there there are kind of discussions that you can have about what what good sex is and that we should be having these discussions. And you can do that in a way that doesn't kind of assume that own good sex can only take place within marriage or, or, or anything like that. Indeed, there can be kind of quite aspirational accounts of uh, what a good, I, I want, I was going to say promiscuity, but promiscuity is actually quite a tricky word because um, it, I think a, a, it, it seems to mean um, some people take it to mean indifference and these, um, these views that I'm thinking of, uh, they focus more on it being about um, respect and enjoyment and genuinely enjoyment for everybody involved and and um, not using 
um, other people or feeling like you're having sex with somebody for the, the wrong kind of reasons. So I think we can talk about that and should be talking about that throughout, you know, whatever age somebody is. But of course, then we go to the question of, you know, interfering. And I think that there might well be a, um, while people are developing, we might think that there's there's sort of more interfering that you can, you can do. There does come a point where you you, you say, okay, so um, we can have these conversations, but it, in the end of at the end of the day, it's a matter of adults making up making their own decisions. And I think one thing that's also important to remember is that if you're not within a relationship, it can be quite hard to to actually to understand what's going on or um, what value. I mean, if you don't engage in a sexual practice, you might not understand how that sexual practice genuinely works and what is entirely happening in it and what value somebody could find in it. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's that kind of combination of caution, uh, but wanting to open up conversations about what good sex is. Yeah, and just following on from that, Fiona, and indeed from what Beth was saying, as she started to think about this, on that on that particular kind of um, kind of eight, I mean, a particular age range. Not as if I've got a particular age in mind, but actually the phrase that comes to my mind is or well, safe and healthy experimentation or something like that, right? Because I mean, intervention or interference kind of sounds as if it's like stopping and do not do that thing. But actually, it may not be that. It may be, um, as you say, Fiona, kind of having a kind of healthy conversation about things and and creating the right sort of space for people to understand what's going on. And actually, I'm coming back to to Mill again. Not that he quite puts it like this, but actually, people are gonna, in order to be mature, mature in their sexual relationship, they need to themselves need to learn it um, and not be told all the things all the time. But you need to create that as I say, safe and healthy space them to experiment, uh, both for other people and for themselves. So they, they um, yeah, okay. Listen, let's leave um, that segment there. Um, thanks to all three of you. And uh, we'll see you in a short while. We'll think about some more details of particular relationships. And welcome back. Uh, Before we move into this next segment, just to remind you, as I often do, to check out my personal website. So just search for Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N. If you look at the tabs at the top of the screen, there's one of them that says Pod Schools. If you click on that, it'll give you a sense of the episodes that are about to be recorded over the next couple of months. Um, if you find something that uh, interests you and you want to ask some questions of me and my guests, then please feel free to email me. And we certainly want to use your questions and ideas. That's if you're a student or indeed you're a teacher. If you are listening to a recording that's already happened, but you've got some questions and comments about it, please email in as well. And it might be that I get teachers back and we do just a Q&A session and I fire questions at them, which they're not suspecting. So we might get Fiona and Matt and Beth back, and I'll just fire questions at them and see if they can they can cope with it. And so my email address is you can find that quite easily, but it's a it's a Kent University email address. Okay, so um, we've uh, had a really good introduction to some of the terrain with sexual relationship 
ethics. Let's think about um, some uh, particular issues and particular relationships. And we're just discussing in the break between segments. And we thought it might be a good idea to start things by thinking about the natural law tradition and what it says about sexual and and relationship ethics, because that'll give us a a way to think about different sorts of relationships uh, and other things that that arise. So does someone want to give us a, a, a brief summary of what the natural law tradition will say about uh, sexual ethics. Yep, I'm happy to do that if you want, Simon. So it's all stemming from Aristotle and um, Aristotle saying that every plant and any, every animal has this sort of distinct nature depending on the species to which it belongs. And so something becomes good if it fulfills its nature. So everything's striving to fulfill its form, to be what it's intended to be and This means to actualize its potential. And this is the key thing. So a thing is defective to the extent that it falls short of what it's um, intended to be. So on the course, we talk a lot about actuality and potentiality. And so the things are actual in that they exist and they have potential depending on what they are. So we go through with the students how every plant has the potential to grow and reproduce And these potentialities are present in even the seed in which has the potential to grow into a plant and then reproduce. And then we talk about how every animal has the potential to grow, reproduce, move and communicate. And then we talk about humans and how, yes, humans are animals and they share these potentialities of animals, the potential to grow, reproduce, move and communicate. But there's this sense that human beings are in a class of their own, if you like, and they have this greater, further potential and this potential to understand and a broader spiritual potential if we're moving towards the natural law tradition. So sex in the natural law tradition, so yes, sex is the means that all animals, plants and humans uh, use to reproduce, but the big insight of the natural law tradition of ethics or um, moral tradition is that human beings are much more than just animals and human beings, and human beings can misuse sex to stop them fulfilling their potential. And so this kind of shows the tension, I guess, between sex um, for the utilitarians, because the main point is that, I guess, sex and reproduction are part of the potentialities of human beings, but by no means the most important part. And there's this big thing in the tradition that would be stressing that if it was only undertaken for pleasure, there'd be this huge danger that people involved could be damaged. And if you make pleasure and happiness the kind of highest goal for life, um, you're giving in to your animal instincts, and by doing so, you're failing at your higher level potentialities. Great. That's really helpful, um, Beth. So from that introduction, then, just think about, anyone want to, want to carry on the story and think about particular sorts of sexual relationships and how they might cohere nicely with the natural law tradition or fall foul of it? Yeah, happy to take that up, especially if you take on board someone like Aquinas who developed the natural moral law tradition one of the five so-called primary precepts is, of course, to reproduce. And therefore, uh, it seems to suggest that sexual relationships should only be geared towards reproduction. Uh, Sometimes people say, oh, that's the the be-all and end-all of sex from, say, a a Catholic dogmatic moral uh, theological perspective. I say that's not quite true. That tradition also acknowledges, say, the unitive value of sex between husband and wife. There is, um, of course, according to this tradition, the expectation that reproduction will be taking place within the setting of a marriage between a man and a woman. And I think the irony, of course, of the natural moral law tradition is that 
Catholic priests are meant to be celibate. And so if we have this whole idea that human beings are meant to be flourishing, and part of flourishing is, of course, um, according to natural moral law tradition, reproducing, well, you have a whole group of people there who seem to be the exceptions of a rule, who ironically are meant to be, I suppose, closer to God through the sacrament of ordination. So there there seems to be an irony here, two things really um, held in tension. And, of course, one of the things to keep in mind with regard to somebody like Aquinas is that he was writing in the 13th century, Reproduction then would have seemed extremely important because Europe was chronically underpopulated. You need people. You needed more people because of massively high infant mortality rates, plague, war, famine. You needed people to um, farm the land and defend the countries. And of course, it's very interesting now that you've moved on a considerable amount of time. You get somebody who's also still very much a conservative thinker, somebody like John Finnis, updating natural moral law for the final quarter of the 20th century. And you find that in his seven basic goods, reproduction isn't there. Yes, you have life as one of the seven seven basic goods, but you no longer have reproduction. And it's interesting that two thinkers with Aristotle at their core, Aquinas and Finnis, both of them are thinking about the polis, both of them are thinking about flourishing in re- of the individual in relation to, not at the expense of society. Yet both of them, both intelligent people draw vastly different conclusions about what is rational to impute onto human nature. One of them says we should be reproducing. The other seems to be agnostic about the issue. I mean, I I was going to say, I mean, Finnis does see marriage, which he sees as procreative marriage, as a what he calls a basic and exigent good. I think that there is there certainly the idea that reproduction has a important place in in human life in Finnis, don't you think? I've seen friendship and I've seen life on the list. Uh, I didn't see marriage with the idea of reproduction, but I might have been looking at it in, a, in the wrong place. So he has a paper called um, called Marriage, uh, A Basic and Exigent Good, I think it's called. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a paper devoted to discussing marriage. And um, he argues it's it's a, a basic good. He also says it's a, a unified good. So his argument is that you should only have sex within marriage because sex is only good within marriage, and you and you can only have proper love within a, a heterosexual marriage, and that it should be sex that's geared towards procreation. He says that people who have who, who, who think they're in love but who aren't in this kind of heterosexual marriage are mistaken because the only sex that can really express love is is, is, is marital sex. Uh, he thinks that um, if you t- take away the, the kind of if, if you make it a non-reproductive love, a non-marital love that sex is supposed to, to express, then it's sort of um, why would it why would it have to be sex that you would express? You could you could just as well have a friend that you go fishing with or, or or something. So there is this definitely maybe maybe we're looking. It sounds like we're looking at two different bits of Finnis, but certainly in 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 this paper he does defend the kind of marital um, okay. love and the, the restrictions that puts on sex quite quite strongly. It's an interesting argument. I still think, though, that the overpopulation, underpopulation issue would be an interesting one. If if St. Thomas um, was here now, I wonder whether he would agree with Finnis. 
because um, of course, ever since we can well, from a council of Trent up until Vatican II, you had very much for manualist reading of natural moral law, which was, okay, people aren't really ironically going to think for themselves. They're just going to read off what you should or shouldn't be doing. And that, of course, has affected a considerable number of issues. But I wonder whether Aquinas himself, who was, you know, as I said, no slouch when it came to reasoning, whether if he put him 700 years on, whether if he looked at the issues today with something like reproduction, he would have modified it slightly. So rather than just keep reproducing, maybe reproduce only to a certain level. Because, of course, within, say, the Christian tradition, stewardship and um, looking after the planet has also been an important aspect of things as well. And you, you could often find, especially if you think along maybe Malthusian lines, that in areas of, of declining resources and, and, and conflict, maybe some people would, would say it, it would be better to reproduce more responsibly, perhaps, and have a, have a, li- a limit on number of children or all sorts of different things, rather than, say, uh, what the Catholic tradition has often taken is just keep re- reproducing. I think that gets to something really interesting, which um, which I think is something that that you face, even if, like me, you're you're not kind of really working within that tradition, and that's the question of the kind of the connection between sex and procreation, and whether there is a value in having children in that way. I would not want to endorse restrictions to sex uh saying you can only you should only have procreative sex but i think one thing that 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 a, a lot of this gets gets right that finnis maybe gets right is that for some people there will be a value in having sex through a loving uh, having um children through loving sex and and creating children that way and sometimes you get people who are focusing on the um, the issues of climate change or the very many children who who already exist you know, who, who require parents, and I think they, that they maybe miss that that it can be for many people import that can be an important part of their sex life and uh, of their life um, having children through loving sex. So I, I think that there are elements that even if you're not going to accept all of this natural law background and framework um, you can find interesting and helpful. Great thanks Fiona. So just uh, and from all three of you so then just thinking about that conservative Catholic tradition there are other traditions as well which might say very similar things but certainly conservative Catholic tradition Aquinas and and in modern day John Finnis. So we've got the, the basic idea that, that Beth introduced where there's a certain sort of um, function or telos that human beings have. It's to procreate, and then we can then think about loving relationships between uh, a woman and a, and a man at the base of that, and in fact, a, a marital relationship. But of course, there are lots of um, sexual relationships that don't conform to that model. Uh, which of course are then going to see be seen as unnatural and possibly immoral for various reasons. And of course, we can we can we've already listed some of them. So same sex relationships, um, extramarital relationships, and 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 so on. So what sort of feature? So so I'm thinking then about the features, right? So uh, the basis seems to be there's a certain natural telos, a certain natural end that's at the basis justifying this kind of core. Uh, norm this this core relationship so what sort of other factors are we going to bring in then to say that other relationships 
are perfectly morally fine. Do you mean in the sense, Simon, that we we make some relationships more acceptable by adding certain conditions to them by saying, well, but if it's a lo- in a long-term relationship, yeah. that what transforms the relationship? Because you hear that a bit, don't you? You hear this sense of, I'm concerned about perhaps, or one might say they're concerned about a, a particular relationship not having um, being natural, but then they add the caveat, but I feel much happier about it as if it is somehow morally uh, better if it's in this long-term committed status. Yeah, good. Yeah, so that, that's the sort of thing I'm, I'm interested in, Beth. So I'm just thinking that um, both in the discussion and, and discussions you might have with with students. So what sort of things do you say? What sort of things do students come up with that then say, well, actually, it's not all um, the natural law tradition that, that we should be should be following or something? Um, I mean, I, I think that you maybe want to take two to, to divide and conquer here. Uh-huh. So one thing I think, I mean, when I read people like Venice, uh, Roger Scruton, for example, and the things that they say about you know, homosexual love relationships, you think, have you ever met a gay couple who are in love? For, for me, I think all that you really need to do is to look at a, a gay couple that are in love and mm-hmm. you can see that that love is just as valuable. So... One way, I think, is about kind of emphasising that love does not need to produce children in order to be valuable. Um, It doesn't need to produce children in a particular way. You know, you you can have families formed in many different ways and they're just as much families. I know I was saying earlier that I thought that, that the natural condition can kind of explain why there might be something valuable in creating children through sex. But I very much meant that in terms of that's some. That's why that might be something that is important to a given couple. I think, as a society, when we're thinking, you know, which families deserve our support, which relationships deserve our recognition, I don't think can they biologically produce children should be a, a criteria for that. So that, in one way, you, you want to kind of emphasise the sort of, in some ways, the similarities. You know, these relationships are built on. All these relationships are built on love. But of course, I also don't want to say that you should only restrict um, sex to um, long-term marital-type relationships. I mean, I think it's important to recognise both um, that uh, casual sex can be valuable and that short-term relationships can be valuable. Um, So I think in that case, I wouldn't be saying those are just like marriages, that there's just the same love there, but emphasize the things of value that you can get in those cases. I mean, in in a short-term romantic relationship, you can uh, it, it that can be uh, a short but very valuable experience where you learn a new perspective on the world or uh, just enjoy spending time with somebody in a way that's valuable. Absolutely. I think that sort of comes back to my um, first point, Simon, that I think the the lens by which you approach the topic through what is a relationship is a really powerful tool for the teachers here, because unfortunately, with these two predominant ethical theories of utilitarianism and Kantian ethics, it's, it's Kant does value the relations, utilitarianism values what the outcome of what a relationship might bring, but the relationship 
in terms of its own status and the quality of that relationship and the experiences you get in that relationship can really be lost in predominant ethical theories that can rather abstract from the context and the messiness and the complexities of those relationships. And I think that's where getting relationships back front and centre for the students is a very powerful thing to do. It can still be done through the prisms and the traditional uh, teachings, but it does help them to, to understand that that relationships matter and there are many, many types of relationships. And I think some teachers might want to draw in wider reading for their students. And I I'll definitely recommend a book by um, Susan Gollenbrock, who wrote about We Are Family. And she talks about the many, many types of relationships where children are raised and are happy and it's all data driven. And it's very clear that there are many types of high quality relationships that are not traditional but the children flourish and and the and the many dynamics within the partnerships um plural sometimes um flourish as well and i think that would be a really he healthy thing for a department to be exploring as well a philosophy theology religious studies department when we will be having pupils coming from all different perspectives here and i think relationships again will hold that hold that together really really well um it allows space for the full range I completely agree, and I think it's a good idea to put relationships front and centre and have the theories at the periphery as different ways to, to look at things. But it does seem to raise the question, are there limits at all? Would you want to get people to think and explore, okay, what do you personally believe? Do you believe there are any limits to what counts as an acceptable relationship? And we're not talking necessarily about an external intervention of the type Simon mentioned earlier about some kind of interference by governments or a third party, but moral limits are there any moral limits to relationships? And then, of course, there's been a lot, quite rightly, in the last 10 years about consent, about the importance of consent. And that has to be something taken into consideration. Of course it does. But are there uh, any other limits or limiting factors? Or are there no other limiting factors if people are in love? Uh, is, is that the be-all and end-all, really, that and consent? Or how, how do you explore it with your pupils? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I make quite a good synoptic link to um, Linda Woodhouse, who comes up in the secularization section on paper three, when she introduces the live your life ethic and how we, we need to move and be aware that in many ways values have become the new religion, but there are some values we hold dear and others that we are more concerned about. So there's a nice link there, but I, I agree. We do have to think about what constitutes a robust relationship types of relationships and I think the theories can help us there really because there will be big considerations we need to to draw in that Mill himself realizes there are sort of pragmatic limits to how far you can extend who you care for and who you um, are concerned about in terms of outcome and I think that's an important thing to think about there'll be, there'll be practicalities to this and Mill can help us with that um, whereas the Kantian approach might show the limitations in terms of the lack of awareness of context. Um, but I think you raise a really good point. We do have to maybe think about that. It's a bit of a shame in some ways for the two boards, although I think Edexcel have virtue ethics. I think virtue ethics can be a really valuable way of, of explore, exploring the different types of qualities you would want to have in a relationship and how, you know, in the right place, in the right time, one quality is really good for a relationship. But at other times, that quality can be really stifling for a relationship and it doesn't help you to grow at all. 
I was just going to say, just thinking to the to the students now, uh, and then we're into kind of difficult, difficult territory, but it might be worth as an exercise if you if you're comfortable either on your own or with other students, and perhaps in the in the safety of the classroom, just exploring. Going back to to Matt's question just from five minutes ago, what sorts of relation we talked about quite a few relationships, but what sort of let's say kind of more extreme relationships one might think about and hear about. So uh, people who are consenting and seem to be in love uh, and want to engage in a certain sort of sexual relationship, but already from the same family, but not in, not in the same kind of um, kind of roles that one would normally associate. We've been talking about such as, you know, uh, already married um, or di- vast differences in ages and, and, and examples such as that. So what sort of relationship would you think, oh, no, that, that's sort of, that's beyond the pale. That's the sort of thing that we couldn't imagine happening, even though these people may be consenting. So what happens with philosophy, as I hope you're discovering in, in your studies, is that philosophers often deal with difficult questions like that, just as a matter of, of contrast to think about, well, with the range of cases that we do accept, why are we accepting them? Why are they justified? Uh, where where do we draw draw lines? So it might be worth students uh, thinking through those, those examples. Who wants to come in on that, Fiona? So I just I wanted to come back to a question that Matt the, the way Matt phrased his question because he said if they're in love is that enough? And I think there is a really interesting question there about how we're understanding love. Mm. You, do we think somebody if people say they're in love? Does that mean that they are in love or are there limits to what can count as a loving relationship? So one it's a really thing, good question, yeah. So one thing for me, I think that I would doubt whether somebody really loved me if they didn't see me as somebody worthy of equal respect. So I think there are, there are some types of behaviour within relationships and actually within relationships that aren't as un unusual perhaps as the ones that Simon raised, maybe even within a married or a heterosexual marriage after children, you quite often get quite a lot of uh, inequality of uh, how much childcare people are doing, how much housework people are doing. And um, I do sometimes hear in a, you know, in a relationship you, that the way that some women are treated, which they would see that this is perfectly normal, you know. He gets to go out and have his uh, his um, sports activities. Uh, this is this is a, incredibly important for the family, but she never gets to go out herself because, you know, he works hard and maybe she works hard too. But it, it you can get this kind of pattern in a relationship where it seems as if one person's needs are just really not considered as as important as the other person. And I find it a really inqu- imp- interesting question. Is that a loving relationship? Can you love somebody if you don't see their needs as important as your needs? You know, even if you do so, perhaps because you, you know you've been brought up in a culture where that is perfectly normal, so you don't you don't really realise you're doing it. So I think yeah, there there are real questions about you know what are the what the what what are the limits to something really being a loving relationship, and might that help us to think about when we think that love does is when when love is enough? I mean, you you could say actually it's going to be love if they think it's love. Love isn't always perfect, 
So we need to separate that question. Yeah, so I completely agree in in a sense of being able to define love. That's very important. I suppose going back to Simon's point about, say, familial relationships uh, or relationships with family members, for example, one of these limit cases, what if there, what if there genuinely was the respect there and the people genuinely loved one another? Would I, I imagine most people would say that's morally wrong. Um, then it's kind of analysing why. Are those reasons good reasons? Uh, what counts as a good reason here? Do people, if you speak to a lot of people about that, where people sort of brought that up in my class as an example and kind of taking lots of people by surprise by even using that kind of scenario, when that's become a discussion, some people will just say, I just know, I just know about something wrong. And then again, it's a nice link to another area of the course by looking at, say, um, intuitionism in metaethics, where people have a feeling of moral certainty, which is very hard to explain. And this becomes a problem if you have a variety of people who, all of whom seem equally sensible, all of whom seem equally reasonable, but who yet come to different moral intuitions. And then it gets very hard to articulate just why something seems to be morally wrong, unless you give up on the idea of there being something objectively morally wrong, and then it becomes a matter of different opinions. I mean, I find philosophy of sex is one of those areas where you do have a a real challenge. I mean, I tend to think there are some things where even if I can't, I haven't yet come been able to explain why it's wrong, and quite a few other philosophers haven't yet been able to explain, I'm not going to then conclude it's not wrong, I'm going to live in hope. And then there are other things, homosexuality is an example, where I tend to say things like, there's no good reason why it's wrong, so it's it's clearly not wrong. And I do notice there's a kind of I mean that's I'm that's an inconsistency in me that there are some things I'm I am prepared to argue that way for and others I'm not. Um, I imagine there are some things you probably wouldn't bring up today where we, you probably wouldn't even want to live in hope about them, where you, you probably know absolutely it's something beyond completely beyond the pale which is irredeemable. So then you could argue almost there are three positions there. One where you where you kind of know that you're right, one where you live in hope, and the other where you know a practice is absolutely beyond the pale. And that's where it becomes difficult because, again, it's trying to find reasons for things where you, you have a an intuition, you have a, a gut feeling, or you have something where you're perhaps open to an idea, but then it's very difficult to explain using the various resources and tools we have at our disposal, the ethical theories for different religious positions, other secular positions, to exactly articulate why you fall in those sort of three different camps for a variety of different sexual identities and practices. But ethics is, I mean, ethics is always something that we do. We're repairing the boat while we're on sailing it. So you, you're always thinking... I mean, if if you if you have a, a, an ethical theory, and it you know you think, oh, I agree with all the premises, and then the conclusion is something that you just intuitively can't live with when it comes to the implications it has for p- particular cases, you're not going to accept that as an ethical theory. So ethics is always kind of an interplay between the principles we accept. And our intuitions about particular cases, and I think this this just comes out really clearly in philosophy of sex, where there there are. I mean, I think it's partly because there hasn't been that much philosophy done on this area 
that's not from the natural law. I mean, there's loads of philosophy in that's from a religious perspective. But I think the secular stuff is more, is really kind of comparatively, I mean, in recent. So I think in a lot of cases, it's that these are, just, these are hard questions and we haven't spent enough time on them yet. The difficulty is if we're starting from our conclusions and intuitions, I'm not saying both are overlapping, both are tantamount to the same thing, and then are trying to repair the boat as we go along, it almost becomes like a pick and choose ethics. And it becomes very difficult then to shift somebody else's position. And this has become, of course, much more apparent in the age of Twitter, where people's opinions are out all the time, where you get echo chambers, you get polarized debates, and it's very hard to move forward then. My issue with the ethical theories is not so much that I agree with all the premises and then don't like the conclusion. The issue is I don't like any of the theories. (laughs) (laughs) The one which is probably closest to something which I can work with is, is virtue ethics, which ironically is... The theory which has been jettisoned from the uh, OCR specification reform um, is probably the most useful in many ways. But again, it's not very useful for decision making so much as trying to assess somebody's character. My my problem then with ethics is how can we shift debate? How can we move things in a, in a different direction? How can we use ethics as a discipline to try to move people away from um, worse ethical practices to better ones? Or do we even give up the idea of there being better and worse and we just say they're all different? So I, I think we have to be a bit careful because we don't want to say, I, I, I want to say there are some things that I know ethically, some intuitions I, I won't give up. But that doesn't mean that everything is a matter of intuition. Either there are some things that you can't give up and other things that you that you are you know, you're less sure of. So I think we we need to decide what is up for debate, what's what is a matter of discussion and what's not. And then we we need to find some common ground, some shared values, and um, we can reason from them. I have to hope it's possible. Okay, listen, uh, thanks all three of you. Let's leave the discussion there and we'll join you all in the third segment where we pick up this debate and survey what we've done and uh, conclude. And welcome back. Um, So we've discussed quite a few things so far, but there's plenty of other things uh, that we can carry on talking about. So in this third segment, we'll eventually get to the question we've already touched upon which is what is the value of of sex and the value of sexual relationships but in order to get to to that question um, let's think about two other specific questions we haven't raised yet so why is sex different and special from other human activities Uh, and also we've been thinking a lot about people in relationships and thinking about you know certain sorts of relationship but what about the individual themselves and their own sexual needs. Um, let's think about those two questions. So let's think about the, the, that first one first. So why is sex different and special? Fiona, do you want to start things off for us on this one? Yes, yeah, so I think this is the question that I come back to over and over again when I'm thinking about philosophy of sex. Um, so it seems as if we treat sex differently from other activities. The first ever thing that got me in issue that I looked at in the philosophy of sex was looking at monogamy. Mm-hmm. Why uh, why be monogamous? 
And that's an, that's an area where we treat sex very differently from other activities. You know, if you if you said, I want you to promise never to play tennis with anybody but me, you know, we'd look at you like, what? <laughs> um, uh, but we think it's completely normal to require our partners to promise to have sex with nobody apart from us. So what is it that, that means, that, that makes sex kind of different from these other activities? Why is it um, special? And for me, that's particularly important because I want an answer to that that doesn't require restrictive sexual ethics. So I want to combine uh, a kind of liberal sexual ethics with an account of what's different and important about sex and why it seems to matter to us more than other activities. I do have an, an, an answer to that, but I'm not sure if uh, I should. Uh, it might take the whole of the next segment for me to explain my, my argument. Okay, good good question though, Fiona. Um, Matt, Beth, have you got any response to that? But possibly a shorter than Fiona's possible response. I would say on, on the issue of um, monogamy, that very well-known, very well-respected philosopher Russell Brand said that uh, monogamy was only a couple of letters away from monotony. And I think your tennis thing is really does kind of throw it into sharp relief. I mean, we would never expect um, people to have just one tennis partner, yet why do we expect people to remain faithful to their, their sex partner there? I could get quite psychoanalytic and think, well, someone like Freud would say, would have gone all the way back to say the, um, the old man myth, James Fraser, the golden bow, even if that's been largely discredited, uh, to put it mildly. It's the idea that somehow uh, back in the, the early stages of civilization or even pre-civilization, we can find something there ag- against sexual promiscuity. Again, that word, as you said earlier, could have different meanings. We can go back into kind of a get quite young and go back, go into the collective unconscious fair. But I think a lot of it is to do with with Christianity, Judeo-Christian morality has meant that with vows and going back to natural moral law again, order in society to prevent jealousy, to prevent conflict. It's been a lot easier to order society along pairing people off, whether that's right or that's wrong. But that, you know, that's, that, I think a lot of it's gone down to, gone, gone back to that. That's a kind of debunking response, right? So it's sort of that's that's an an explanation of why we think that way, but not a justification for monogamy. Oh, exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just struck by the Russell Brand quotation. Not not that anything else you say was really good, Matt. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking. I mean, here's a here's a, a another thought. I mean, bringing in the in the idea of extramarital sex. So clearly. In many cases of extramarital sex, partners can get hurt uh, and it can break up a marriage and all that sort of thing. In fact, it's possibly probably a, an indication the marriage already has broken up, um, if, if you know, informally, if not formally. But there are also cases where um, what was required, and in fact, we, we, we often are reticent about this, what was required was some extramarital sex to happen um, and then to to reawaken the sexual desire in 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 one or both partners and to and to re enliven the the relationship. And so I'm just struck by the point about monotony. And actually, you know, perhaps I really appreciate the fact that we're now playing tennis again because I was off playing tennis with someone else. You know, my backhand improved, and now I'm back playing tennis with you, and it's a different sort of game, and it's enjoyable for both of us to to stretch the analogy nearly to breaking point. 
So I'm just thinking that that's a kind of interesting thought. About extramarital sex, one of the few times I can see situation ethics being quite a useful ethical theory is to think about the value of extramarital sex to keep a marriage going. Uh, an example I sometimes use with my students is uh, the Lars von Trier film Breaking the Waves, where you have a couple where the husband is disabled, unable to have sex with his wife, but he wants very much to keep his marriage going, but recognises that she has sexual needs. So they agree that she can have sex with other men, um, and it's, the film explores the difficulties of keeping that relationship going. And again, if, if you think about again, what is love, if you think of love from an agapeic perspective, uh, um, so not erotic or even friendship-based, but from an agapeic perspective, if, if you try to apply some of the principles of situation ethics, pragmatism, um, personalism, putting people at the centre rather than laws or preconceived ideas, then you have something where, again, situation ethics, the end justifies the means, and love wills your neighbour's good regardless of whether you like them or not. I don't think the husband liked the men particularly that the wife was visiting, but he recognised that it was for the best in the situation. So there was adultery happening. It was an extramarital sex, but it wasn't an extramarital affair, and it was done in order to keep the relationship together. And so it's quite a nice example of where, at least on Fletcher's grounds, extramarital sex is not wrong. Yeah, nice example, uh, Matt. We we don't start study this sadly on the A level, but I mean maybe if you did virtue ethics, you would maybe extend to kind of a care ethics approach where the most important thing is to sustain the relationship you're in. What course of action will best sustain the relationship? And there's an element in that where the care ethicists talk about a mature care one has to have for themselves and how everything's done in dialogue. And um, when you were talking, it struck me of struck me that it's a shame that that's not there really on the syllabus and hopefully students can read into that beyond virtue ethics because that's quite an important question to be asking yourself what what course of action would sustain my relationship with myself and my relationship with others and um i think that's that's a really important thing to think about because in that case study you gave that shows the real complexities and the real issues you might face in as a, as a sexual being but a being just um in love and Hmm. So one interesting thing about that case, though, is that it seems to you had to give a case where there the the one person couldn't have sex, where there was a kind of a barrier to to sex within the relationship, and you had to kind of point to the you know the sexual needs of of the wife, which still seems as if it's taking monogamy as a kind of default. It's assuming that. That, that monogamy is reasonable and and Simon you know, brought up the idea of being hurt and for me that's a really interesting question why is it hurtful to think of your partner having sex with somebody else and not playing tennis with somebody else having a meal with somebody else doing philosophy with somebody else and 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 I think I come back to there being something that, that sex actually is a, a different activity and and can play an important role within a relationship to the to which and that's i think why it's it is reasonable to be hurt by the thought of your partner having sex because of the the role it can play within the relationship and i try and say that without then having to say so sex is only okay if it's playing this important role within the relationship. So it's a, a kind of view on which sex can be this thing. And if it plays that role, it's reasonably to it's reasonable to be hurt by your partner having sex with other people. 
but it's also possible to have sex which isn't playing that role when you're not in a relationship I don't think everybody is hurt by their partner having sex with other people. There are polyamorous relationships, poly families. Um, there are lots of people who not bothered by that in the slightest. I think, again, it's, it's a debunking explanation, but I think a lot of people who do, I mean, the majority of people do, I do think it is probably a legacy of Judeo-Christian morality and going back to sex usually traditionally being within the bounds of heterosexual marriage and vows being um, made concerning um, sexual exclusivity. And so we probably associate the breaking of uh, the vows with breaking of promises generally and it being a personal slight. And also traditionally, the, the woman being the property of the man. So from, 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 from that perspective, that would be seen as, again, a slight and it would cause some hurt. So I think it's a legacy. I'm not trying try to justify it, but I think that attitude of the majority of people is a legacy of very, very traditional um, social mores. See, I, I I agree that there are lots there are lots of bad reasons to be monogamous, and there are lots of bad reasons to be hurt at the idea of your partner having sex with 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 others. But I I don't think it needs to be just a legacy of 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 those uh, of old fashioned attitudes or possessiveness. I I think that you can see the desire for monogamy as as a kind of positive thing. Um, this is this activity which means a lot which is a way of expressing love and because it plays that role within within our relationship I don't want you my partner to do this very special thing casually um does it have to be casual though could you not respect two people why why could you not only respect one person uh well I, I mean I think you should respect everybody so I I actually think you need to separate two questions so one question is why do we get hurt by the idea of casual sex and that i think is to do with seeing this as an very special as a way of expressing love and then being hurt by your partner doing this special thing casually and then uh, we have the question why is it reasonable to not want your partner to fall in love with somebody else and i think that's much more to do with the kind of well the, the question that, that that beth asked uh, what's what's needed to keep this relationship going? Is it worth asking my partner not to form another similar type of relationship and to conserve their resources? I mean, long-term loving relationships are amazing, but they are also quite, um, inte- you know, that they, they they require a lot of resources. Yeah, taking out logic, though, you could say that if you have a long-term relationship, and let's just say there are three people involved rather than two, quite often, if you just have a monogamous relationship, those resources can be depleted because it requires two people to be fully engaged all the time. You could argue, I'm just being contrarian here, you could argue that if you have three or more people in a relationship, if somebody is going through a difficult time in another area of their life, something very difficult at work or with friendships with other people or family issues, if they need to spend a lot of time with, say, uh, a very ill parents, if there is another person in a relationship, that could kind of fill that gap. And in other words, they can. it's, it's why we have multiple teams in work, for example, because it shares out for work and it means if, if one person is unable to fulfill their role through illness or another commitment, they can um, have other people taking up the slack. So I think if there are relationships of respect, I don't see why that should be an issue in terms of um, negative feelings 
long-term in, say, polyamorous relationships? I think it's a matter of strategy, isn't it? I actually think that there there are two perfectly good strategies for managing the needs of a long-term relationship. And um, I do think it's reasonable to say, let's agree to do the um, the restrictive strategy. The other one is can be very complicated. I mean, I have to say, I'm I think I'm just naturally monogamous. That it it would be very difficult, I think, to handle. I don't think I can cope with the complications. What if you know we already ha- you already have a two body problem. One person wants needs has jobs here, the others is there. You got a free body problem, free jobs, free careers, free places to manage. Uh, but that's not to say that it's um, unreasonable to go for that strategy. I mean, uh, we argue in our, our paper that actually it's it's quite a, it's quite a sort of happy paper because we say you can be proud of being monogamous because it means that you value your relationship so much that you want to. You're, you're prepared to build this kind of fence around it to protect it, um, and you value sex so much that you want it to be um, this very special thing. You can be proud of being non-monogamous because you know that shows that you trust your partner. You're uh, both willing to get that the, the value, additional value you can find in other relationships, and you know you believe the relationship is strong enough to deal with all the complications. So I kind of think. You can be proud of being non-monogamous and proud of being monogamous. But yeah, I think there's different strategies. For me, it goes down to, are you either Phil Collins or David Crosby? David Crosby, you were kicked out of the birds for writing Triad. But then Phil Collins, you have two hearts, but just one mind. <laughs> so it depends whether you like late 60s psychedelic rock or 80s Reaganite Thatcher pop. <laughs> That's essentially uh, how I see it. Uh, thanks, Matt. And on that note, let's let's pre- let's go back to that uh, question I raised right at the start. Just think about these different relationships, be it two or three. I have to say, my head spins the idea of having being in a three-person relationship. I think I, you know, I struggle to cope with a two-person, and I'm sure my wife does as well. Let's think about uh, then the individual, because because so much of the focus is on relationships. Let's think about the individual and their relationship, as it were, they have with themselves or their, or their perspective they have with themselves as a, as a sexual being. What kind of issues are raised there? Beth, do you want to introduce yeah, this, this I question? just think um, something that we've been thinking about is this idea of nurturing a very particular type of relationship and there's this idea that that might look a particular way with, for example, two people. But there is a sense that a lot of this is a journey, isn't it? And that for a lot of people, they're going to... Um, we all start as one with ourselves and that journey with ourselves, and that we become in many ways a sexual being with ourselves first. And I think we have a huge taboo surrounding um, masturbation and it's this, this idea that we don't talk about it. And I think that's, that's really problematic and we should talk about that as a society. And um, so I think we should remember that when we're talking about relationships and sexual relationships there is the individual who is a sexual being and is in a sexual journey with themselves and that is a long journey where they're going to yeah predominantly stay with themselves throughout it and meet others as well and I just think that's an important thing to share with the students as well that 
that that is not something that we are excluding because there's a danger in all these discussions that, as I mentioned when we talked about families, that we could end up excluding certain types of relationships and certain types of experiences. And I think we we should start with the idea of yeah, the individual who is in a sexual relationship with themselves and uh, will want to be on a see that as um, something to explore. And then they might, yes, also encounter other relationships and, and those sexual relationships will will vary. And also talking about preferences, there's also this opportunity that we should also talk about the fact that people might then choose not to be as sexual for periods of their lives. And, and lots of students talk to me about the fact that it's a bit, um, they think almost it's very difficult to say that you might not want to um, be sexual or that you, you might want to have periods of your life where you aren't. And I think that's important that we talk about that as well, that there might be Maybe people feel quite stifled by sex talk in society and maybe it's okay to, well, it is okay, absolutely, to to think about that not being something for your identity for periods or long periods. I mean, the flip side of that, just to be slightly contrarian, is to think that with um, something like masturbation is to think of it as purely a, a private act. So it might sound at the first sight to be a, a bit of a crazy thing to say, but if you think about, say, st- stimuli for masturbation, uh, then you had to interface with the idea of pornography. And again, that varies tremendously. And for some people, there might well be something like people watching revenge porn or pornography where people have been exploited. And of course, that is created in the first place. Uh, it's uh, supply to meet demand. So in, in some cases, of course, masturba- masturbation will be a, a purely private activity. And then you can start applying, if you so wish, say, thinkers such as Mill to that but then in other ways it is something which does uh, involve other people indirectly yeah good thought matt i think um matt's really absolutely right because often some sort of stimulus is um an important part of of masturbation when it's playing that role of a, an exploratory journey as part of a relationship with yourself of figuring out what you like, what you enjoy, what your preferences are. Um, so external stimulation can play, play a really important role there in helping you to, 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 to know what the options are, you know, what, what, uh, what you could like. Um, so often it will involve consuming ex- well, pornography or um, erotica. Some people use the term erotica to kind of refer to porn that is ethical for example sometimes people use that that distinction and i so i think that that we do we need this kind of stimulus often and it's important to, for us to, as a society to think about how to provide that ethically so i don't agree with the sort of no we should have no visual aids or no no pornography but I do think we need to think about what kind of pornography is available and uh, how do we produce that pornography. Yeah, and, and, and there's also interesting you know, issues about content and, and content versus production because we can also think about the ethics of, for example, books, even if nobody is, is using, uh, is, is, is fil- nobody's been filmed, nobody's been photographed, but they still can w- raise ethical issues. Um, just going back to, to Beth's introduction, my mind was whirring in a, in a different direction. In a way, it kind of, I don't know if this is right or not, so I'll have to speak it aloud. But it kind of raises issues for me that we've already been talking about, namely the, the, the value of, 
of, of sex, right? It comes us back to f- the, the question Fiona's got us thinking about every so often. You know, why is sex both, you know, so important, but we want to have that variety, right? So, but with the individual, as, as Beth was describing, of course, it's certainly true with, with lots of young people nowadays being, being more explicit than perhaps previous generations who will declare they're asexual, they're just not interested, they're, they're indifferent, or certainly can imagine that that's how they want to be at certain periods of their life. And, and in fact, perhaps they, they, they're more focused on their career or on playing tennis or on, on whatever it might be, right? Yeah. It just sex doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a context, doesn't it, with very particular people or doesn't uh, at particular times in your life or it doesn't. And this is this danger with some of these, let's go through the theories. We're just abstracting this whole problem or this, like it's a debate, but it's people's lives and it's their journey with themselves as human beings. Yeah, so, so I'm just thinking about the value of sex, which, as, as you mentioned it, Beth, right, even if they're asexual, I think it was you, perhaps it was Fiona, they, they still have an a relationship with sex. It's just not supposedly the normal one, but actually many people feel in, in this way, certainly at periods of their life. And I suppose there's there's an attempt to capture that sex is is quite central and important, and yet for some people, they're kind of indifferent to it. And in a way that, going back to Fiona's thoughts. Well, certainly tennis isn't isn't that central to many people's lives. Perhaps sports might be, or art, or something like that. In a way, I was just, my mind was worrying in in that direction about the value and importance of sex for individuals, even if they might be indifferent to it at certain. Or worse than indifferent, maybe worse sure. than indifferent. Maybe sure. sex has been incredibly damaging for them, and That's sex right. is a means by which they feel very excluded from yeah. their life and their, ex- their community. And so I suppose we need to be thinking all the time about relationships, but also about like inclusion and exclusion and how sex and the sexed body, sadly, has led to um, real damage and ex- yeah, exclusion f- for people. Yeah, you're right. So there might be lo- a range of emotions such as yeah. scare, uh, being fearful yeah. and so on. Sorry, Fiona, can we, you come in. This reminds me of of what I was talking about, about what I thought that, you remember I said, I think the natural law theory shows us why some people might value um, having children through through loving sex. And and then I was saying, but I want to understand that in a way that doesn't say that's the only way to have sex or everybody's got to do that. And I think that that's what we we should be trying to do throughout um, looking at philosophy of sex. We should be um, trying to make sense of how something might be valuable to, 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 to people, to some people at some times in their lives without trying to say, but your life, you, there's something wrong with you if you don't value it. Hmm. And one of my students one, once said what they would have liked me to look at was work on how celibacy could be valuable. And I think that was really interesting. I think as part of that project, it would be interesting to look at how you can have, how you can find value in sex, but also value in not having sex and how we can recognize those different, those different ways things can be valuable for different people at different times without saying everybody has to be the same. Listen, that was a really good discussion from all three of you, but I think we better leave things there. So, Fiona, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, and Beth, thanks uh, for being uh, with us as well. Thanks so much, Simon. Uh, and Matt, thanks to you as well. Thanks, Simon. 
great. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Get School. There's lots of other episodes on lots of the topics available. And perhaps uh, you'll hear me talking to some other people about some other topics another time. 